Josh, thank you very much for joining us today. How are things in Houston? Uh, things are good. How are things in Toronto? Uh, not too bad, not too bad. It's uh, temperatures are around zero, I would say, or around freezing. And uh, for the most part, it's been very warm up until now. And um, I think that's having a big impact on the NAC gas price. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do that, I want to talk about oil. And as we enter 2024, I want to get a sense of where the oil price is going. And there's so much happening in the global economy and this is one of the reasons why i really enjoy discussing oil because it's subjected to so many different variables we still have the war going on in the ukraine we have conflict in the middle east now we have oil tankers being attacked in the red sea and yet you intuitively i would think the oil price would be up on all of this but it's not it's down on the year why it's a great question. So first of all, my, my short-term crystal ball is broken. So I can describe what's happening. I can assess what's happened to get us to here. And then I think I have a decent idea of what may happen over sort of the medium to long-term, but no one really knows what the oil price is gonna be tomorrow or next week or next month. And we even saw that very recently where um, there was sort of this flash crash in oil and in the equity markets very recently where um, why did it go down? <laughs> no one knows. There was no, no good answer. Um, so uh, we've seen the, the biggest surprise for 2023 was about 800,000 barrels a day more oil exports from Iran. Um, that looks to be supported, at least to some extent, by production growth in Iran, along with the depletion of their floating uh, floating storage. So that was sort of a big surprise. I don't think people thought that the U.S. government, along with other uh, sort of world governments that had been imposing those sanctions, would have allowed um, that. And so an extra 800,000 barrels a day, it did get absorbed in the market, but it pushed prices down probably about $20 a barrel or so uh, just from that, uh, that surprise. Um, the, other, the other surprise has been a little bit higher than expected production growth in the U.S., in U.S. oil shale. Also on the gas side, there's been a surprise uh, up from a volume perspective. Um, and that, I think, was driven by uh, the, the drawdown in drilled uncompleted wells, along with some productivity surprises, particularly in North Dakota, where folks, I think, thought that production was going to decline there. And um, some infill wells that, that are not going to be, it doesn't look too replicable, but there were, there were some wells that were a lot better than people expected. And uh, so the combination of uh, higher production in the U.S., along with much higher exports from Iran uh, seem to have suppressed oil. Um, and even though demand grew more than expected, the increase in supply that was even greater than the increase in unexpected demand uh, suppressed price. So there's a lot to unpack there, but let's just start with Iran and the additional 800,000 barrels uh, a day. Put that into perspective for me. What is annual production or what is daily production? and also demand? Um, so the world uh, is using and consuming a little over 100 million barrels a day. Uh, the latest figure I saw was around 101.5 million barrels a day. And um, it looks like right now, supply and demand are roughly in balance. There was a, you know, the weekly report just came out from the EIA, the weekly numbers aren't very reliable, but that would have shown uh, production maybe closer to 102 million barrels a day globally. Um, when, when all those numbers are sort of settled out, I think we'll end up slightly less than that, and we'll end up with demand 
roughly meeting supply right here. So that works out to be a little under 1% of global supply and demand. Now, there's a lot of chatter about the U.S. going into a recession. And of course, the U.S. is the largest producer and also the largest consumer of oil. And yet GDP is growing very strong at 5% annualized. The jobless rate is very low. And yet some people might look at the oil the oil price as an indicator of the economy and, and weakness in the economy. Do you think that's the case? Like, do you think the oil is also coming under pressure because the U.S. economy is slowing down? They say that inflationary recessions cause monetary illusions. And so what we're seeing is positive GDP, but not positive um, inflation-adjusted uh, real economic activity. So you're seeing lots of sort of government-funded um, uh, projects and uh, subsidies and so on. You're seeing other sorts of things that get counted in the GDP category that would not traditionally have been thought of as economic activity and that have ultra-low multiplier effects relative to almost everything else that's counted in that GDP number. So what you're seeing is um, you're, you're seeing sort of a real economy um, that's pretty weak along with a sort of financial economy and subsidy sort of government funded world uh, in the US that's, that's really strong. So that translates over to gasoline and diesel demand where you're seeing less diesel demand as you had a freight recession in the US this year, which is starting to recover. Noteworthy uh, that you know diesel demand sort of bottomed out and is starting to improve, but is still way lower than it would have been if the economy was truly healthy. And again, it's where you see all these economists have so much trouble. Everyone forecast a recession last year. They claimed there was a 100% probability of one, and then you have 5% positive <laughs> GDP. So, hey, how do you reconcile it? And again, I think it's this sort of real versus nominal and this sort of government spending driven versus sort of private market high multiplier effect uh, economic activity. So, uh, lower than expected gasoline consumption, lower than expected diesel consumption. Um, it's almost the effect that you would have expected if you had negative GDP. And the nice thing is that we we sort of experienced those already and we're going into this next year with substantial fiscal stimulus still in place, but some of the inventory overstocking and some of the other issues that we experienced through the COVID sort of um, supply chain issues and then debottlenecking have already been resolved and they've already sort of been cleared through. So we are set up potentially to actually have a real economy recovery in 2024, which conveniently is an election year here in the US, which means you can end up actually seeing substantially stronger oil and oil products demand here in the US, even in a time where there are some other uh, economic categories uh, that are weakening and where there's sort of broader economic uncertainty. So let's talk about the Red Sea now. And as a reminder to the viewers, the Suez Canal is basically a shortcut to go from Asia to Europe and Europe to Asia. And now with these container ships being attacked and oil tankers being attacked, the world's 10 largest shipping companies are now suggesting their ships don't go through the Suez Canal and they go down around the continent of Africa. That's going to add significant time to uh, the trip to go from Asia to Europe. But what's your take on this and how will it impact oil supply and also price? 
So the, the pun is that a wave of ships is headed uh, south instead of through the Suez Canal and through the Red Sea. And so um, when you look at it, um, I spent some time with different physical oil traders and retired physical oil traders to help figure out sort of, including one who did a lot of trading in bunker fuel, which is the, the fuel that most ships used to use. Now a lot of them will use essentially diesel or something similar because of environmental regulations. But he's <laughs> he made a career and a lot of money out of figuring these things out. Um, his estimate is sort of conservatively, you end up with about 500,000 barrels a day of more um, fuel demand for ships through the combination of longer routes, which means essentially more ships running um, to, to cover sort of the same amount of cargo. Um, because if you add 10 days to the journey, you essentially need 10 days more equivalent of ships. And then as you have those extra ships deployed, you increase utilization, which drives uh, day rates for those uh, cargo ships up a lot. And that ends up incentivizing um, faster speeds, which actually dramatically increases fuel consumption. So uh, it's not just that you have more ships, you'll have more ships that are going faster. Um, it is interesting that so far you're not seeing tankers getting attacked. And I think that has to do with who's backing the Houthis. Uh, the Iranian government has been funding them, has been training them. And um, there's also been some potential, there have been uh, rumors of some funding from the other side of the Gulf as well. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see in terms of what comes out in terms of who's been funding and, and promoting the Houthis. Um, but it seems like they don't want to disrupt the ability to supply oil to the world. Um, so for now, there's not really a threat uh, to oil supplies. It's more of a just incremental demand source, which actually you, you might notice is almost as much as the incremental supply from Iran. And so that's where you're seeing as this is playing out, you've seen oil take up a few dollars. People think it's from a supply geopolitical risk, but the reality is it's actually just absorbing oil that came into the market from Iran. And you're ending up going from maybe a slightly oversupplied or balanced market to a slightly undersupplied market from this one factor. So everyone talks about, oh, we're worried about where the oil is gonna come from. And the reality is they should be worried about this extra sort of slug of demand that was not anticipated. You can see it in the basis uh, for these various uh, fuels. And you know it could get very interesting depending on sort of how this escalates or sort of how it plays out. But for right now, I think the biggest focus, and it's not really had almost any sort of broader mainstream media attention, is the oil consumption of these ships as they speed up and they go around the, uh, the southern uh, Horn of Africa. Interesting points. I want to talk about oil now and how it's being used as a political weapon and also an economic weapon. Politically, the, the U.S. is trying to keep the price down as we go into an election year. They released the energy strategic or strategic energy reserves. They also entered into or, or relaxed restrictions with Venezuela, so they're able to produce um, some more oil and, and sell it into the global markets. And then the U.S. also entered into an agreement with Iran where they're also producing and, and selling more oil. But then from an economic point of view, OPEC they're trying to just do the opposite. They want higher oil prices. What's your view on this conflicting policy between what's happening with OPEC and also what's happening with the U.S.? Well, I think the U.S. Uh, the the U.S. sort of executive branch 
is confused and misinformed. And it would help them if they <laughs> uh, hired capable energy economists to actually understand what's happening there. Um, so they seem to want lower oil prices. So they emptied half of uh, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, they treated it as sort of an election petroleum reserve and sold a lot of it ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. And they seem to be, they're refilling it slightly right now, it seems potentially ahead of another release ahead of the election next year. Um, the, the thing that they seem to be missing is that higher oil prices are actually good for the U.S. economy, given how many jobs are associated with rig activity. And they're missing that their unfriendly regulations, their higher taxes, their sort of um, restriction of available capital has led to a 160 rig drop in the U.S. in the last year. And so if they want lower oil prices, they should want more rigs running, particularly in the US. And instead they favored more supply coming out of our dear friends in Iran and Venezuela and fewer jobs in Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico and Colorado and Pennsylvania and so on. And so they, they just don't seem to really um, understand that that drop in rigs is going to lead to disappointing oil and gas supplies. They're taking credit for higher oil production, even though the likely future production has dropped because of the lower drilling and completion activity. So it's just, it seems like it's just a matter of time. The analogy I would uh, think of is sort of this uh, wily coyote running after the roadrunner. The roadrunner has run straight down the cliff and is, is gone. That's sort of the rig counts sort of collapsed and production hasn't fallen yet, it's still sort of sustained and you need you need the roadrunner to sort of come back up for the coyote not to just uh, fall off, um, off of this air that he's essentially been running on. So um, US production here at current activity levels is definitely unsustainable and it just depends on sort of which companies and which economists and which sort of forecasters you believe in terms of if you need 50 or 150 or 250 more rigs to get production to be stable to actually growing here. And I think that could be a real problem for this upcoming election because we could end up seeing surging oil prices even if the SPR is released um, because I think people are just expecting US production to grow even though drilling and completion activity is down. And so let's talk about OPEC and what they're trying to achieve. And just on the back of that, I I'm, should also ask you about the recent news that came out of Angola. They want to pull out of OPEC. Maybe you can just talk about that and what that means, if anything. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's deal with the Angola first. So Angola has formally withdrawn from OPEC. Um, Angola had been missing their OPEC quota limitations for years. And the numbers come out every month and every month they were sort of a bottom performer in terms of how much they were producing versus how much they were allocated. And so I think, I think OPEC realized that this was sort of um, contributing to some fallacies around spare capacity and around sort of uh, the market being either oversupplied or there's this potential large supply that could come onto the market based on these quota numbers, which was totally unrelated to what could actually come on in a reasonable period of time if oil prices were to rise. And I think the right way to think about that is oil prices spiked from negative in 2020 to $130 a barrel approximately in 2022. So anyone that had production would rationally have turned on as much production as they could have, especially if they were under their quotas um, in that, in that run-up. 
And so any production that didn't come on in March and then June of 2022, I think, is not truly spare capacity because it couldn't just turn on. And I think OPEC gets that. They've been discussing it publicly. We put out a white paper in 2021. Everyone was scandalized. And then a month later, the Saudis were like, yeah, you know, there's actually less of this stuff than people think. So, um, so Angola, I think, has just been embarrassed. They claim they want to produce even more. Um, there's no evidence of that. They certainly weren't producing a lot more when oil prices were $50 a barrel higher than they are. So it's possible. I mean, they're a very sort of dysfunctional country, as are many. Um, you know, there's this natural resources curse where, you know, the more you can extract from the ground, the less well run your country tends to be because the government doesn't need to rely on uh, taxing uh, earners and productivity. They can just sort of directly extract money from the ground. Um, so. Angola, you know, who knows, right? They, they may be confused. They may actually have some production. It's, it seems unlikely given the large discoveries historically and sort of how depleted uh, Jubilee and other sorts of similar uh, projects are. Um, so, and I have to double check. I can't remember if that's in Angola or if it's right on the other side of the border. But regardless, there was this big exploration trend there's, that was developed and production has fallen off and there hasn't really been that next wave. So even if they did, have a plan, and even if they did have giant resources to actually go explore, delineate, and then develop, we're talking five or 10 years. Um, so I think the big thing is, so oil fell a couple percent on the news and then it started to rebound. And I think the thing that matters more is how much does this affect OPEC cohesion and OPEC plus cohesion? Now, I don't think, I think the rest of OPEC is looking at them, maybe except for Nigeria, which has the same problem, and they just sort of feel sorry for them. It's like, you know, your third cousin shows up for your holiday meal and they're like not well dressed and they like have an alcohol problem, they're drinking too much. I mean, like you just sort of like when they leave, you, you know, you don't you have mixed feelings, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have a wonderful cohesive family. It's just that they have their their specific issues. No disrespect to uh, people with alcohol or other substance abuse issues, but I think it's sort of the right sort of analogy. It's not. I don't think it's really reflective on on that family group for that sort of uh, misbehaving or sort of problematic uh, member to to leave and. Two others have left. Historically, Indonesia left, and as their production was collapsing, and Qatar left as they were ramping up their natural gas and natural gas liquids, and just sort of <laughs> oil was less relevant for them, and their production was so small that it didn't really matter for OPEC. So this is not the first time; it's not the second time. And so I think in the end, this will just sort of be a footnote. Um, five years from now, we'll look back, and it just won't even be relevant in the conversation. So we started this whole conversation talking about how warm it is outside, unseasonably so, and that's having an impact on nat gas. Why don't we talk about what's happening in nat gas and the pricing and where you think it's going in 2024? Yeah, so natural gas um, is massively oversupplied in North America. There was this sort of narrative of producer discipline, and the reality is that I think you should just expect um, producers to behave according to their own sort of self-interest. And there is sort of a game theoretic optimization. Um, and if you think about it as sort of the classic prisoner's dilemma, they just all cheat. And so you should just, similar to OPEC, right? Like OPEC is not cohesive right now because they have found religion, which some people are implying, and there has been all this like echoing of, oh, maybe they go flood the market. No, they don't flood the market because they want higher prices. and 
they just can't produce as much as people think, and that's sort of this whole Angola problem. So similar idea uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, where you have these public, in some cases, public companies, they claim, oh, we have discipline, we're going to, you know, not flood the market, and then, you know, <laughs> production's up something like 8 BCF year over year, demands up maybe 3 BCF a day year over year, and, um, or 4, whatever it is, you end up with a multi BCF a day uh, surplus, and, um, you know, LNG export facilities are coming on, but they're delayed. So um, you just, you saw a break in producer discipline and you saw much better well productivity, by the way, on the gas side than the oil side. So you saw a couple of spots where oil well productivity surprised to the upside. And again, I think they just sort of found some specific redevelopment in North Dakota where you know, there were a few wells or a few dozen wells to drill that were better and were most of the way through that. Um, and then on the gas side, you saw that across thousands of wells and sort of mo multiple big fields. So I think I think that uh, lack of capital discipline along with improvement in well productivity is really driving uh, gas prices more than the warm winter. And so the warm winter obviously isn't helping, but you know I think I think this glut would be hurting um, regardless and, and the high level of production matters most. That being said, with the drop in rigs since natural gas prices fell from a high of eight or nine dollars in 2022 to a low recently for winter which is remarkable of i think it was 240 or so dollars an mcf at a uh, at henry hub uh recently um as it fell that much you've seen the rig count fall a lot and again it's not that the producers are trying to drive the price up, it's that they don't want to lose money on drilling wells. And so you're seeing you're seeing the activity fall off. It is setting up potentially, depending on what the path of the rig count is over the next year or so, for a reasonable recovery in natural gas over the next, let's say, couple of years as those LNG facilities turn on. But it's really hard to tell what's gonna happen in the next year or so, because we don't know if 50 more rigs show back up in the Haynesville and Marcellus and other spots, um, you're going to see another glut of gas and you're going to see low prices for another year if the rig count stays relatively muted and if weather cooperates. You could actually end up seeing, let's say, $4 natural gas at this point next year rather than $240. But it's really, I think it's it's uncertain based on these sort of known considerations. And so it's just worth following the data and seeing uh, seeing what's likely to turn out. Josh, as we wrap up, the oil price is subjected to so many variables, including weather and geopolitics and the global economy. But nonetheless, I'm going to put you on the spot. Where is the oil price going as we enter 2024? So with, with my caveat that my short-term crystal ball is broken, so there's a good chance I'm wrong on this. Um, I got I got last year half right. Um, I thought oil would go up and natural gas would go down. And so natural gas went down and oil went down. So this year, I'd say natural gas sort of follows the forward curve. So it ends up a little higher than we are right now at the end of next year. And I think oil is materially higher at the end of next year than we are right now, absent a severe economic recession in the U.S. and elsewhere. So materially higher. So right now we're trading in the low 70s. Do we hit 100? Do we go over 100? Yeah, I think I think we could. I think we could see 100 plus dollar oil uh, by the end of uh, next year. And I think uh, I think it would actually be hard for that not to happen. But again, there's just a lot of different factors, like you mentioned, as well as the unknown unknowns that make the shorter term very difficult. 
the reason I say that my short-term crystal ball is broken, but not medium to longer term is the long run sort of underinvestment in exploration and development, similar to Angola, where they just haven't done enough offshore exploration to be able to ramp their production. They're saying they're going to break from OPEC, but realistically, they can't really, even if there was the oil there, they don't even know, and they can't really get it for another five years, 10 years, et cetera, to get back to their sort of historic production levels, 50 or 100% higher than where they are right now. The whole world sort of has that problem. There's been way too little exploration, way too little delineation, lots of shale, which is sort of short-term, high decline, high reinvestment requirements. So um, eventually we're going to hit this point where the insufficient exploration leads to an Angola-type outcome for the broader oil supply. And as that happens, I think we're going to see actually prices. So again, 100 or so, let's say for this time next year, but I think we end up going to inflation address at all time highs. So I think we see sort of 200 to 300 plus type oil at some point this cycle as as the underinvestment in exploration yields radically higher prices, which are necessary to get that exploration and delineation activity. But when you say two to 300, what time period are you looking at when you say this cycle? Yeah. What do you mean exactly? I think sort of in the next three to five years. So you look at sort of the depletion of sort of existing fields, you look at sort of new discoveries, you look at the production trajectory across a lot of different um, a lot of different places and the demand trajectory. And you just you get to this number where by let's say maybe it's five years, so by like 2028, you get to this number where the demand number at the current trajectory, which actually may be understating it because you have all these emerging economies on the S-curve where they're growing. Uh, their oil demand actually faster than their GDP um, and much faster than their per capita GDP. And so in even places like China, where they're growing their per capita oil production, even with uh, potentially negative GDP, if you sort of adjust the way their um, government numbers. So um, I think I think you just have this problem where you need really substantial exploration and development right now. And instead, you have barely enough to sort of float and sort of get to around the current demand levels, but there's just no line of sight to replacing the existing production, forget growing another 6 million barrels a day or so that we're going to need to grow over the next five years. And again, that might actually be too low. We might end up actually using even more oil at that point. So that's where I sort of have that, that confidence in that view. And I think we just need much higher prices in order to encourage development, as well as Unfortunately, frankly, to suppress demand from emerging markets where a high enough price is going to get that oil demand growth down a little bit. Well, interesting comments, and I hope you're wrong on those price targets. But thank you very much for spending time with us today. And if our viewers would like to learn more about you or follow you or learn about your services, where can they go? Uh, bisoninterest.com. We have a, a regular update that we put out, and then on Twitter at bisoninterests, or they can follow my economic ramblings and so on at Josh underscore Young underscore One on Twitter. Once again, Josh, thank you. Thank you.